Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. We're back. We're back. It's episode 7 of The Blind Side, but it is the first for 2018. It's great to be with you. The primary focus of the show today, we're going to be speaking with Penny Reader, the president of Guide Dog Users Incorporated. That is the Guide Dog-related affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. And we'll be talking about Delta Airlines and their policy to make it a lot more difficult to travel with an animal in the cabin. It's a real concern for guide dog handlers, and we'll be talking about this with Penny and exploring all of the ramifications of that and what might be done to try and get a better deal for guide dog handlers. But a little bit before that, because I've been away, I've been reading, I thought I'd catch you up on what's been happening with me We have this tradition in New Zealand, and it's a tradition I'm very proud of, where we take a nice long break. Four weeks, actually, is the minimum legal leave that every employer must provide in this country. So that's four business weeks of annual leave, and plus you get statutory holidays such as Christmas and New Year on top of that as well. I was reading a number of health-related and mindfulness-related books over the summer, And one of them actually specifically mentioned New Zealand and I think France and Germany as other examples where we do take this downtime and how it's a really good idea and how in America people aren't as lucky. Sometimes they don't even take the vacation time that they've been assigned. So that's unfortunate. And it's just great to go off the grid. I don't check a lot of email or do anything terribly much with my device other than read with them. I should also provide a recommendation, actually, of some fiction I've been reading over the summer from an indie author. I was interested in reading a political thriller or something of that nature, and so I did a bit of a search on Amazon and found this guy, this indie author on Kindle called A.C. Fuller, F-U-L-L-E-R, and he's written a few books now. There's a series, uh, an Alex Vane series, which is about a journalist, and we see him sort of grow and evolve, and it's um, it's got all sorts of elements, a bit of politics, a bit of media stuff, and some thriller content in there, and he's got a new series The second book of which is due in the middle of February, I think it is, and that is called A Meritocracy. And it's about a young woman who decides that she's going to try and take democracy back and have a kind of an American Idol style competition to choose a candidate to run for president. So he's excellent. And he's available on Kindle. I don't think he's available on any other platform. He seems to have concentrated on Kindle. And that is um, A.C. Fuller. Also over the summer, my daughter got married. You will have heard Heidi, if you're a long-time listener to The Blind Side, Heidi Mosen. She's done some things when we've talked about iOS. And also she did the famous Blind Square demo that I got so much feedback on. Well, Heidi Mosen is now married off and she's got a new name. And it was a wonderful experience. Not only was I father of the bride, but I also got to be the sound dude as well. And for those who are interested in all the technical side of this, I got a little Behringer mixer, the 1002, I think the model number is. And the reason why I got this was because it can be powered by 9-volt battery. You can put up to three 9-volt batteries in this mixer if you need phantom power for microphones. It will run on two 9-volt batteries if you don't need phantom power for microphones. And you get about four hours on each set of 9-volt batteries. So that's enough to get you through a wedding ceremony and maybe a bit of a dance or something like that. And the wedding was outdoors. 
So that was challenging. I took one of the Heil PR40 microphones from the studio and we uh, we did the outdoor ceremony and got a great recording of it. And of course, on the father of the bride side, well, if you are of an age where you have been a father of the bride, no doubt you will relate to the many mixed emotions It was a a pretty emotionally intense day, but very proud of them both. And I've got a wonderful new son-in-law, so that's great. I also wanted to tell you about a new show that you may be interested in that I'm doing on Mushroom FM. Had a bit of a time for contemplation, of course, about Mushroom FM and new things we can do over the summer break. And the slot that I have held for some time on Mushroom FM during the week which first goes out to where at 3 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. That equates to 8 a.m. in the U.K. And currently, with the time difference, that's 9 p.m. in New Zealand. And it repeats 12 hours later. So exactly 12 hours later every weekday. We're now doing a show called The Daily Fiber in that slot. And The Daily Fiber is a technology magazine show. I like to keep up with technology. I need to keep up with technology in a Mosin consulting capacity. And so I look at a lot of RSS feeds. And in the past, I've tweeted some links to those stories on the Mosin Consulting Twitter account. But the Daily Fiber kind of takes the place of that because not only do I discuss the stories, but also try to put them into some sort of blindness-related, accessibility-related context. So it's a show that really has taken off in the first week that we've been doing it. It began on the 22nd of January. And if you would like to hear The Daily Fiber, it's available at those times. And if you're not in any of the time zones that I've mentioned, you can see the Mushroom FM schedule in your own time zone. You can go to mushroomfm.com slash schedule to do that. That's mushroomfm.com slash schedule. And I've had a lot of questions. Well, really, a lot of people asking the same question. Are you going to make this a podcast? We're not going to make this a podcast because I am volunteering to do this. You know, it's a Mushroom FM related thing and we all volunteer on Mushroom FM. So I can't devote too much time to it. And it would involve a bit of serious editing and messing with things because we can't podcast the music. The interactivity is also an important part of this. You can tweet in with your comments and your thoughts and share those with other listeners by using the Mushroom FM hashtag. So it's uh, it's interactive, it's fun, and it's on Mushroom FM, which you can find on all your smart speakers. It's in TuneIn, it's in many other apps, including OOTunes, which means it gets to your Victor Reader stream as well. Or you can just find it on the web at mushroomfm.com and listen there with the online player. Or, of course, Tap In Radio is a really good app on your PC. And in fact, it is a solution, Tap In Radio, that I'm recommending to people who just can't catch the show at those times because they're busy. I, you know, maybe they were asleep at one time and working in the other time. Tap In Radio has a very easy-to-use scheduler if you pay for the version of it that does, and it's, it's pretty low cost. And then you can just have it running in the background. You don't have to have it actually even consuming your sound card resources if you don't want to and you can schedule the tap in radio to tune to mushroom fm at the appointed time and record the show and then you can listen whenever you want so perhaps not quite as convenient as a podcast but nearly there so i hope you enjoy the daily fiber it seems to be very well received at this point and now stories making news in the blind community on the blind side In researching this podcast, I read a lot of news sources, and some stories I find fascinating, 
but it's difficult to find sources to explore them further. And so I thought we would introduce this section of the podcast, just introducing you to the sheer diversity of stories about blindness that exist around the world, because it is quite sobering and also very interesting. So let's look at a few stories that uh, are uh, out there at the moment. And of course, you're welcome to comment on these stories or anything else in the podcast. You can drop me an email. And when you do that email, you can either write something down or if you prefer, you can attach an audio clip to your email. That's really easy to do these days with voice memo apps on your smartphone. The email address to send podcast-related feedback to is theblindside at mosin.org. That's the blind side all joined together at mosin.org. And let's go to Uganda for our first story. The Uganda National Association of the Blind has given 100 canes to blind people in the Teso region to aid them in movement. They've started issuing these canes by giving them to leaders in the blindness field so that they can better encourage other blind people. I find this a fascinating story. We, of course, have to continue to champion our own accessibility journey, but it is sobering to realize that for some people, the humble white cane just makes such a difference, and it's something that we take for granted. Blind people are often left at home in this part of Uganda, according to the media reports about this story with no means of independent travel or the skills to travel. They are given what are called caretakers. They may be family members. Those family members may go out to work. And when they do go out to work without cane travel skills and the knowledge of how a cane can make a difference, those blind people are stranded. This particular district has one school for the blind and parents have to contribute financially. And so often what happens is that blind children drop out due to a lack of funds. To cap it off, a famine has also hit the district and some blind people are struggling for food. So wonderful to see that those white canes are being distributed and making a difference. Here's a story from Pakistan. And in a landmark ruling, the Lahore High Court has banned the usage of the terms blind, mute, deaf, and lame to describe what the story describes as differently abled persons. The Chief Justice in the court also directed that disabled persons must in future be referred to as special persons. When referring to persons unable to see, the term visually impaired person must be used, the ruling said. Legislation is going to be amended to expunge these banned terms, terms like blind, from a significant employment law on disability in Pakistan. I posted something on the Mosin Consulting blog a wee while ago that still gets retweeted from time to time on person-first language. Person-first language is something that I strongly object to, and I do understand the logic that some people advance for the use of person-first language, They say that if you don't use person-first language, it puts the disability first and foremost and that one's disability doesn't define one. My problem with that is that there are a lot of characteristics that don't define you. If you're a short person, you don't go around talking about being a person with shortness, do you? If you're somebody who is pretty, you don't talk about being a person with prettiness. And so by convoluting the language, And using convoluted terms, you actually draw more attention to the disability. And my concern 
is that getting too sensitive about the terminology means that we can't have a frank discussion with people about the really important issues of disability. I notice too that this varies a lot culturally. In the United States, I think here to some extent in New Zealand where I'm based, blind is okay. Blind people are quite happy to use the term blind. I do note when I listen to things in the United Kingdom that a lot of totally blind people refer to themselves as visually impaired. And I find this curious because I think of a visually impaired person as someone who's got impaired vision. My vision isn't impaired. It's completely not working. So I think that being a blind person is different from being a visually impaired person. I guess not everybody agrees. Also, when I hear the term visually impaired, it sounds to me like somebody is somehow unattractive to look at or or unusual to look at or something like that. So when I do use a term to describe somebody with some vision, I often use the term vision impaired. It's a really challenging minefield, isn't it? So what do you think of this terminology? Do you think that Pakistan has done the right thing by banning the term blind? And what's your take on the person first language thing? Let me know. Drop me an email to theblindside at mosin.org. Now, if you fly KLM... We go to them for our next story. That's the Dutch airline. You can now take advantage of audio description on that airline to begin with. They've got four audio described movies available. Pretty good range of genres in those four audio described movies. And more will be available in the coming months. KLM isn't the first to do this. We have to go all the way back to 2014 for the first. Emirates became the first airline to offer audio description in 2014. And let's go to South Korea for our next story, because South Korea's constitutional court has rejected for the fourth time an appeal challenging a century-old law that restricts the awarding of massage licenses to visually impaired people. There's that term again. The court ruled that professional massage services should be the exclusive preserve of the blind as they have fewer employment options. The law provides for an imprisonment term of up to five years if it is violated. So pretty serious stuff. Cited people are saying, well, it denies our right to choose whatever vocation we want. But they see it, the courts see it as a way of protecting the livelihoods of blind people in South Korea uh, who may not have other opportunities. Interesting, and I wonder whether there are parallels there between what South Korea is doing in this area and, say, the Randolph Shepard program in the United States. Interesting to contemplate that. Let's look at a story that has got a lot of publicity, even in the mainstream media, and this relates to what's happened in Nepal with Mount Everest. I think many of us were very proud when Eric Weinmayer became the first blind person to conquer Everest. It's wonderful when we can celebrate the achievement of other blind people, isn't it? And realize what effort they had to go to to make something happen. And I mean, what effort anybody has to go to, blind or not, to climb Mount Everest. Everest has a special place in our heart here in New Zealand, of course, because Sir Edmund Hillary was the first person to conquer Mount Everest and get back safely, along with, of course, Tenzing Norgay. So we care about Everest and we follow things about it with a lot of interest here, even now. It seems like the Nepal government may be looking to reverse the decision that has posed a blanket ban on all blind people and double amputees from climbing Mount Everest. There's now some indication after some representatives from the disability movement in Nepal met with the relevant minister there that maybe they were a little bit hasty, 
that this blanket ban was not appropriate and they've been asked to submit further information with a view to reversing this ruling. So that's good news because while I wouldn't have a hope of climbing Mount Everest, the fact is that blindness is no barrier to climbing Mount Everest. There are all sorts of challenges relating to fitness and coordination and all those things, but blindness should not just blanketly preclude one from climbing Mount Everest. So good on the NFB who took this one up as well in the States, the National Federation of the Blind. They issued a press statement on this and to everybody in Nepal who has been lobbying for a better outcome. And those are just some of the interesting blindness-related stories around at the moment. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. It's a scenario that you don't have to have a vivid imagination to contemplate, the idea that you need to catch an urgent plane. But because you're a blind person with a dog, that may be difficult if you want to fly Delta, if that's the best deal in town, or maybe even the only deal for the destination that you want to get to. It seems like guide dog users in the United States may have to go through a lot more hoops to fly Delta in future unless Delta reverses course. To explain what's going on with this and to discuss the implications, I'm joined by Penny Reader, who's talked with us before on The Blind Side about guide dog issues. She's from Guide Dog Users Incorporated, which is the guide dog affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Nice to talk to you, Penny. I'm sure you're not sweltering in the heat like I am, so I thought I'd just rub it in there for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Actually, it was pretty nice here today, but we had some really cold weather about three weeks ago. I heard that. What has Delta got in mind for people who travel with dogs in general? Well, what they have in mind is uh, implementations of new requirements to make um, anyone who travels with a service animal and they're lumping emotional support animals in with this requirement uh, to make anyone who does that uh, submit a health form. I, apparently the vet fills out the health form and it indicates that your dog's vaccinations are up to date. So they want this form submitted each year, once every year, and that form has to be submitted 48 hours in advance of any plane that you take. Then when you get to the airport, you have to go to the check-in desk. So you can't check in curbside anymore. Um, and you probably have to leave your companions because they want to get through security. Um, so you have to go to the check-in desk and wait in line and get them to verify that they have the form. And hopefully they haven't lost it or they can access it. And then you can proceed with check-in. Uh, for emotional support animals, there's an additional requirement that the person present some kind of a certification. It doesn't say who's going to be the certifying body, um, that the dog is well-trained to behave well in public. Um, so it seems to me, well, I'm not going to judge it, but I am going to judge it. I think it's a terrible idea. I don't think uh, your vet can certify how well your dog is going to behave in a strange venue. And um, I don't know who else would do it. And I know that lots of people with pets uh, get fake certifications and pretend that they have a disability so that they can travel with their, quote, emotional support animal. And it probably wouldn't be too hard to get a fake certificate verifying that your dog is well-behaved in public either. So that's the gist of what they want to do. And they want this to start in March, on March 1st. If you want to travel any time within the next year, then you can lodge this 
documentation with Delta before you even know you want to fly. Is that right? And they have it on file. That's correct. And why do they want to do this? What's been the catalyst for them taking this action? Well, you know, the catalyst has been all the incidents with ill-behaved and misbehaving and out-of-control animals on their flights. According to their press release, they transport 700 animals a day, and many of them are misbehaving, defecating in the aisles and um, biting people and causing all kinds of problems. And so they believe this is going to curb that. They think this is going to deter people from bringing their um, emotional support animals, apparently, uh, onto the flights. Um, I don't see how the two things are connected, but that's what they say. They say they're doing it because they're concerned about safety. And we're concerned about safety, too. We don't like flying any more than anybody else does with out-of-control animals. And it represents a, a, a ha- safety hazard not only for us but for our dogs. Um, but we just don't believe that this approach is going to solve the problem. Am I right that most guide dog schools in the United States put themselves through the inspection from the International Federation of Guide Dog Schools? I think they all do. I know of one that I heard does not, and that may have changed since I heard about it. But as far as I know, all the major programs do. And, you know, that's a certification that we can count on because it means that they meet the Federation's requirements for providing excellent training for their dogs and excellent breeding for their dogs. And their dogs are medically sound when we bring them home. So That's right. And the, where I'm going with this is that it has always interested me, staggered me, to be honest with you, that America has chosen to go on down the path that it has. Because in New Zealand, for example, you cannot fly in the cabin with an animal unless that animal has been certified in a way that gives the airline some confidence that the that the dog is going to behave. And when that happens, they have some obligation at that point. I mean, it's the law. They cannot refuse to transport a dog that has received appropriate certification as a service animal. It started with guide dogs and then it's gone on to companion dogs for the deaf and I think now some other disabilities. But they all have to be accredited in some sort of meaningful way. I've been absolutely amazed to watch how the ADA has been used since its adoption back in 1990 by Americans, where basically anybody seems to be able to call anything an emotional support animal and fly in the plane. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a a monkey or, or, you know, I mean, all sorts of animals. I mean, haven't the guide dog advocacy organizations in the States brought this upon themselves by not standing up earlier and saying, look, you just can't call anything a disability support animal and put it on a plane. Well, I wasn't there in 1988 and 89 when the ADA was being written, but I have heard that that was the major major cause of disagreement. Um, And apparently people who wanted to certify their, to raise and train their own dogs and certify them themselves um, won. We certainly have members who have trained their own dogs, not very many, but some. And um, I'm sure that they would not agree with you and probably not with me. I think it's better to have some kind of certification. Let me tell you how we handle that here, because because there is an answer to that. Uh, yeah. you, you can have an organization 
or the Federation itself certify an individual dog. And so here there is an organization that is the legally uh, certifiable body, if you will, and they are required to honestly assess somebody who has trained their own dog and assess okay. that dog for its um, suitability to be a fully functional guide dog because service animals have rights that no other animals do. And with those rights, of course, always with any right comes a responsibility. So I'm not really sure why that would be a barrier if you have some sort of independent organization that could also certify somebody who's trained their own dog. You know, I have no problem with that. I'm sure I'll hear from people who do, but I think it's an excellent idea. Um, who pays for that? Do you know? I don't know. I uh, we we may. I think one of the people who trains their own dogs may well listen to this podcast, and so maybe we'll get some response to this on next week's episode. Um, but I, I I don't I don't think there would be a charge. Certainly not in a country like this one. I suspect it's just done. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very interesting. I I think it's a great idea. But now you know the ADA um, is one agency, but the agency that controls air travel is the um, Department of Transportation, not the Department of Justice. And the law under which people are allowed to fly with their service animals and their emotional support animals is called the Air Carrier Access Act. It was written two years before the ADA, and then it was updated, I think maybe 10 years ago. Um, And in the update, people were allowed to bring their emotional support animals. Um, And so that's a whole different aspect of the situation because um, it's expensive for people to bring their pets. They have to pay an extra fee to put their pet down in the baggage underneath the plane. Um, And many people don't want to put their pet there anyway. And so there's like a whole um, rash of people who uh, either acquire fake certifications or pretend to have a disability themselves and bring their pets and that, from that stems many problems for all of us. And certification can be misused. You look at the issues that the Canadians have had that we covered extensively on the blind side here as well, and that was just a hideous series of suggestions about what constitutes a suitable animal. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, those we've got to be careful. Those rules are just draconian, absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely draconian, no doubt about that. But so you do have some sympathy with what. Delta is is dealing with, but just that we this is not agree. really the solution. We, yeah, uh, that's what we think. I mean, we we agree. We want the plane to be safe when we get on there, and it's also it makes it hard for us to be accepted when when the airline personnel have so many problems with dogs that are out of control. You know, and you got to feel sorry for the dogs too, the pets. You know, the pet that lives in his yard and in his kitchen and in his living room, and then is subject to the crowds in the airport and the crowded conditions on an airplane. I mean, no wonder these dogs act out. They've never had these experiences before. Um, The Department of Transportation does say that um, they don't allow, they don't want to allow exotic animals because we've all read the stories of the turkey on the plane and the adorable duck named Daniel and snakes. I even heard of a spider. Um, the Department of Transportation says that those animals are not acceptable as emotional support animals. And can they do that if the Air Carrier Access Act says that they can, that the people can? I, I don't know. That's, um, 
I, I, when I filed my complaint with them yesterday, I got a response today. And the second paragraph of that response indicated that exotic animals are not acceptable. The issue is, of course, that if Delta does this, then it's a slippery slope, right? It sets a precedent. And before you know it, airlines all over the United States are going to be doing this. Absolutely, if Delta is successful. But on the other hand, if Delta does this and it doesn't make any difference, it doesn't curtail the number of animals on a plane that are misbehaving, maybe other airlines will give it enough time to realize that this isn't an effective approach. I mean, that's something we could hope. Also, the Department of Transportation has announced, they announced this two years ago, but they finally said officially that they're going to present a notice of proposed rulemaking in July and update the regs for the ACAA. So we're hopeful that we will be, you know, intimately involved in that process and that our comments and our experience and our knowledge will be part of the solution. When you go to any guide dog school and you see the extensive training that goes on and and the matching process and just just how careful these professional operations are before they put a dog with a blind person, it really is demoralising that so many of these lesser trained animals are given the same rights without the same responsibilities, it seems to me, you know, that this is where this whole pan disability stuff starts to break down. And I know that people say we've we've got to work together and we've got to coalesce. But the reality is there there are a lot of um, service animals for other disability groups that do not receive the same degree of rigor and scrutiny and care that guide dogs do. And surely the country needs to confront that. I agree. I think that's true. I, you know, I don't have any problem with someone who needs an emotional support animal on a, on a plane who's very anxious. Um, if the dog is well trained, I love it. And if the dog isn't well trained, and I think it should be in a carrier at the person's feet so that my dog ha- doesn't have to confront it and it doesn't have a chance to confront my dog or me or anybody else. Um, I understand that people have anxiety disorders and that I under, we all understand how comforting animals are for all of us. Um, but the behavior of the animals is the real issue. And if an animal can't be controlled by its owner and it can't behave well in public, then it shouldn't be on an airplane. Are there alternatives to emotional support animals that might provide the same degree of comfort? I don't know. Hmm. What are your options with Delta at this point? Are there legal remedies that might be exercised ultimately? Are people seeking to meet with those at Delta who have made this decision? What are your steps? People are seeking to meet with Delta. Um, I talked to Tony, um, what's Tony's name? Tony Stevens, who's a director of advocacy at ACB. And he's going to be meeting with the Department of Transportation in early February. Um, And when I filed the complaint with the DOT, uh, my response letter indicated that they're forwarding all complaints about this issue to Delta. But I'm sure that that um, the schools, at least, um, are going to be attempting to communicate more formally with Delta. And we would be happy to talk with Delta. Um, and, And we've indicated as much. 
It's obviously causing a lot of concern, I imagine. Have you received a lot of um, a, a lot of response to this? Um, seen lots of mention of it on social media and email lists. Uh, it has been all over Facebook. I mean, it's taken me two hours to get through Facebook instead of one now. Um, and uh, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, people are very upset. You know, we don't want to give up our right to check in at an airport just like everybody else. Um, and we also don't believe that this is a solution that's going to work. So now we're going to have to make sure our form and our paperwork is in 48 hours in advance. And then we're maybe going to get on a plane and find some obnoxious dog or cat or rabbit, you know, lunging in our dog. So uh, it's not a good thing. <laughs> Do you accept that the problem is as bad as Delta says it is? Or is there a view that they might be exaggerating the problem? No, I think it's probably just as bad as they say it is. There was a story that made the papers this summer uh, about a gentleman on a Delta flight. He was, um, there was a gentleman with a, a, an emotional support animal, or at least that's how he identified it. It was a lab. It weighed more than 50 pounds, and it was sitting on this man's lap, and the man was in the middle seat. And another passenger got on and attempted to climb over the guy in the middle seat uh, to get in his window seat, and the dog bit him so severely that this gentleman now has to have plastic surgery. Um, and, you know, you hear stories not this bad, but series, stories that are similar to this all the time. So I think it's probably as bad as Delta indicates that it is, and I'm sure all the other airlines are having similar problems. It seems to me that this is one of those issues where it would be great if there could be some sort of coalition that came out with a cohesive way forward, a, a proposal that acknowledged the problem that the airlines are having, while also acknowledging the considerable degree of training and competency that a guide dog team brings. I agree with you. And, you know, we tried to do that two years ago. The Department of Transportation had a process they called the Regulations Negotiation Progress Process. They abbreviated it as the REGNEG. And lots of people with disabilities were involved. All of us had animals. Um, some of the people in this coalition were people who use emotional support animals. Uh, there was a group of people who use hearing dogs. There was a group of people who use psychiatric services animals or psychiatric support animals. Um, we met over a period of about seven months uh, on the phone, and we tried to come up with a solution. And we thought that we had the solution that we all pretty much agreed upon by the end of the process was that um, people who travel with emotional support animals who have not received professional training, like in a school, uh, would be required to either keep their animals in carriers on the floor of the plane, and if they needed the animal to sit on their lap during takeoff or landing, they could do that as long as the animal was leashed and under control. Now, we thought that was a reasonable solution. It took us months to get there, and then at the very last minute, the airlines objected. They said they wanted exactly what Delta just did. They wanted health certificates from anybody who travels with an animal 48 hours or in advance of a flight. And um, then this whole coalition of disability groups, we refused to accept that and the whole process fell apart. The other problem that I think you, you may have is that uh, in the current political environment, you don't particularly have a disability-friendly administration 
at the moment. That's quite an understatement. (laughs) We don't want to open up the ADA for any kind of uh, discussion or amendments. And it even makes me a little nervous that the DOT is talking about uh, new regulations for the ACAA because, as we all know, this administration is not very uh, friendly to regulations. So I agree with you. Right. So that could pose a real problem. When you came up with that agreement amongst yourselves, the the wider disability sector, how were the dogs to be verified as coming from a school where there had been appropriate training? You know, I don't remember. Um, Most of us um, who have guide dogs and hearing dogs and other sorts of disability-related dogs do have school IDs. But I don't remember. Um, I think it was self-certification. We, we came up with this idea of a decision tree so that when you went to buy an, a ticket, you would get your ticket online. That would assume that buying a ticket online is accessible. And um, everyone would have to go through this decision tree process. And the process would uh, ask questions like, are you traveling with an animal? And you would say yes. And then the next question would be, are you traveling with a service animal? And you would say yes. And then a whole bunch of new questions would come up only for you. And if you said you were traveling with an emotional support animal, a whole bunch of different questions would come up only for you. Um, I do remember that we all agreed on that decision tree methodology but that also disappeared when everything else fell apart in those negotiations. The only thing that survived was that now a bunch of airlines are making the entertainment features accessible on planes. And um, the people who use wheelchairs are expecting to have accessible bathrooms, I think, in 2022 or 23 or something. Those are the only things that survived out of the whole process. It's extraordinary to me. It's it's a sort of an American psyche thing that, that a lot of people outside of the states don't understand. But but it seems to me if you if you if you need a license to drive a car, and you need to be certified to 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 practice certain things, you know, whether it be law or medicine or whatever it is, it doesn't seem unreasonable to require some sort of guarantee uh, for the benefit of airlines and restaurants and the people who frequent them that the dog that you're traveling with or the animal you're traveling with is going to behave themselves and has been trained to behave themselves. You're right. But every time you get in a car, you don't have to show your license. And some people object to the idea of certification because they say, every time I go to the grocery store, I don't want to have to whip out my card. Um, you know, I don't care, but I have heard that argument presented against, certif- you know, having to present a certification card. One of the things that we do here is that there's a medallion on the dog's collar. And therefore, there's nothing that has to be war- carried on the person. It's It belongs to the dog. And it's there's a lot of training that goes into that medallion uh, with the appropriate logo and, and inscription being a recognized symbol. Is it possible to counterfeit it or or not? I suppose anything's possible, but it's not something I'm aware of happening here. Perhaps it's just a cultural thing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe so. Well, you know, all of our harnesses have our our school's names on them. I mean, it's and still I get questions. Are you sure this is a guide dog? But you would... It sounds like you accept that it just can't continue to be a free-for-all, but that it's going to be very difficult to come up with exactly what a suitable, acceptable alternative is. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I agree that it's going to be hard and there's all kinds of people who need to be participating and um, some of us are going to have to compromise, um, but we all need to be safe. And I think everybody has a right to get on a plane and feel safe, whether or not you have a disability or not. And we just, and it's not just planes either. Of course, it's all over the place with people using fake service dogs, but it really is disconcerting when you're on a plane uh, because you can't just leave. Um, and the airline has a problem too. If there's a, you know, we tell people that if there's a misbehaving dog, any dog, our dogs included, any business person has a right to ask that dog to leave. But you certainly can't do that in midair if you're on a plane and the dog is misbehaving. So, No, that would certainly be a news story. If that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Can you so imagine? <laughs> where do you go from here? Because the 1st of March is not that long away at all. Do you think that it's inevitable that this new provision from Delta will take effect? Or do you think they might make a good faith gesture and try and get around the table with people and postpone this for a bit? I don't know. March is very soon. And uh, uh, the Department of Transportation in their form letter that they sent me indicated that they uh, understand that the disability community is upset and that they're monitoring these new rules or policies to make sure they conform with the ACAA. And since we don't believe they do, uh, we believe they're discriminating against us as a group of blind people. Um, maybe they'll agree with us. I don't know. But have personnel who would be making that judgment changed in the last year and a bit? They have not. But, you know, the people in the Consumer Affairs Division or whatever it's called, uh, they usually come to the legislative seminar at ACB. And so I've seen them oh, for as long as I've been president of GDY. And they always really want to listen. And um, whenever I've contacted them in the interim, They've always um, seemed to be hearing what I said, so I'm not totally pessimistic. Good to hear. Penny Reader, president of Guide Dog Users Incorporated, talking to us from the United States. And that wraps up The Blind Side. Other than to say, if you have any comments on that story, how do we deal with this dilemma where you have animals of all sorts on planes creating havoc? And, of course, it's just as bad news for those people who use trained guide dogs, as it is for those who don't and just want an uneventful trip. What's the answer? You can drop me an email to theblindside at mosin.org, record an audio file if you prefer, or you can write something down and get it to me, theblindside at mosin.org. Next week is an exciting time for people in New Zealand in particular, but also Australia. New Zealand because the first voice-activated smart speaker officially supported in New Zealand gets released. And many of us have circumvented all of this and done a bit of jiggery-pokery and hackery over the last couple of years. And I've had an Amazon Echo here for a long time. And Bonnie loves the Echo. Bonnie just loves it. But the Amazon Echo family goes on sale next week in New Zealand and Australia. Australia has had Google Home for a wee while, but it's an even bigger deal for us here. We're going to be devoting next week's episode of The Blind Side to the Amazon Echo We'll be speaking with Robin Christofferson about the Echo. If you have any questions about the Echo that you would like me to answer, we will certainly gladly receive those. And I'll also be demonstrating how you set up an Amazon Echo. If you're in this part of the world, Australia and New Zealand, and you want to know how it all works, how to set it up, what it can do, you won't want to miss next week's episode. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side. 
a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.